Well, good morning. Uh, as you know, we've been working through the, the book of Ephesians, and we're just going to tip down very briefly into chapter 4 and just do a little bit of a reverse uh, back into chapter 3 for a few minutes. Um, but this morning, I, I've, I'm wanting to look at the whole concept of being symphony makers. Years ago, the, the movie Mr. Holland's Opus told the story of a composer who, who needing an income, decided that he would teach school uh, just while he composed. And one of his students that he taught was a, a red-haired girl who, despite constantly practicing, he, she played the clarinet terribly. And as Mr. Holland tries to help, he, he learns that she's the youngest in a family of achievers, and everyone excels except... She, and she tries hard, and, but she just fails and considers herself a failure. And one day she comes in and tells Mr. Holland she's going to quit. And she, as she walks away, Holland asks the question, is, is it any fun? She answers with a shrug, I wanted it to be. You know what you've been doing wrong, Miss Lang? We've been playing the notes on the page. Confused, the girl asked, well, what do you mean? What else is there to play? Oh, there's a lot more to music than notes on a page. Playing music is supposed to be fun. It's about heart. It's about feelings. It's about moving people and being alive. It's not about notes on a page. I, I can teach you the notes, but I can't teach you the other stuff. So we took her music away and asked her again to play it. And all she, she tried a time or two and all it came out were squeaks and squawks. And she started to, again, kick in with the whole idea that she was a failure. And Mr. Holland asked, so what do you like best about yourself? And with a shy smile, she said, my hair. <laughs> my, my dad says it reminds him, the red reminds him of a sunset. So play the sunset. And she closed her eyes and began to play and really play, not just the, the notes, but the music. And she's so amazed that when she came to the hard part, she played it perfectly and her eyes popped open and she stopped. And Mr. Holland said, don't, don't stop. And so on she played, eyes closed, head beginning to sway with the rhythm. And this time she knew <laughs> she played with, with joy and with fun. You know, sometimes I, I wonder if we aren't guilty of doing something similar with our relationship with God. We play the notes, but we don't play the heart. We, we play his symphony as if it were elevator canned music, robotic rather than majestic. But the life God calls us to is a symphony. It's the instruments lay, layered one upon the other, strings carrying the melody, the, the woodwinds adding the depth, and the brass and the percussion adding the excitement and the power. And in so many ways, this is what Paul is speaking about when he talks to us in Ephesians as he layers one amazing truth upon another, God's sunsets. And for three chapters, Paul shows us what we have and, and where we stand in Christ, what he's given us. And now in the remaining three chapters, Paul focuses on knowing this. This is how it should impact your life, how we should live. But note, 
he doesn't tell us how we are to live until he's first embedded us into understanding why we live, that we're immensely loved in Christ. God's sunsets, God's colors, God's the playing the music without understanding the sunset. You don't understand. You just go robotic on it. And from this truth of we being immensely loved, Paul obliterates the compulsive shoulds that so easily and too easily drive our lives, replacing the, those with his encouragement to, to live and be driven by love, the one who loves, and then live out that love. Not, not some pre-corona hug fest where faith is just callous-free and, and Christians are innocuously nice. Rather, it's love that's compellingly virile. It, it's engaged. It's, it's invested. It's the type of faith that caused an Abraham to, to set off an, off an adventure having no clue where he was going. It's the type of faith where Elijah would risk life and limb to stand before a despicably evil king. It's, it's the faith adventure of a Paul who would st- stand unyieldingly to bef- as he stood before Roman power. It's a living faith that is noted in Hebrews chapter 11 of those who refused to deny their faith regardless of what it would cost them. And it's easy to see our life different than they because obviously they possess greater courage and stiffer backbones, more impressive strength. But what if that isn't the case? What if God is wanting to write his story, his power, his sunsets on our lives and through our lives just as he did with them? using us as his instruments in his unfolding story right here, right now, in in our world. Doing what we are told in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, doing what he says far more exceedingly, far more exceedingly in the King James, abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And in these two verses, I want to observe just a few things. First, I want to observe God's reach. That his story is a continuing one of the power and the glory of Christ that is throughout all generations, forever and ever. In other words, God's power, God's glory is not sealed between the covers of Scripture, but it's God at work with us in this generation. That we are God chosen to show His glory in this place at this time. God doing the exceedingly abundant beyond all we can ask or think. God, stepping outside our Bible studies that merely focus on what God did and instead, or in addition to, embracing what God is now choosing to do. 
we laying a, a hold of his purposes, his glory in us and through us that is a, abundantly beyond. Stretching us to see a God who is involved in our lives who didn't make just a drop of water, he made oceans. A, a, a God that didn't make a lone star, he made galaxies. Because he's abundantly beyond, that's who he is. There are no limits to his love. There are no boundaries to his blessings. There are no limitations to his faithful, faithfulness. There are no limitations to what he wants to do into, through you and through me. And the second thing we are told is that we are given this revelation according to the power of that works within us. And that tells me, and we're told elsewhere, that, that as God's child, I am given the indwelling spirit of Christ, his power within. And that means what is his is mine. Imagine coming on a, upon a, a majestic mansion. And looking in, you can see that it's even more amazing. And wanting to see more, you, you stand outside just, just looking. And soon, another approaches, a young man. His clothes are torn, his face is dirty, and clearly he's out of place in a setting such as this. But as he comes close, a door opens, and, and he just enters in. By all appearances, <laughs> this one's unwelcome. He's not welcome. But by relationship, welcome home. <laughs> Come on in. The one a son, the other thinking himself a stranger. But God tells me that in Christ, that I am a son or a daughter invited by the Father to come in and ask for the exceedingly abundant. The exceedingly abundant beyond what the doctor diagnosis has said, beyond what the marriage counselor has concluded, beyond what the teacher wrote about us, beyond what the accountant declared, exceedingly abundant, beyond all that we can ask or think, beyond what I can measure, beyond what I can test, beyond what I can understand, that God is able, beyond the limitation world that you and I live in, beyond all our minds can conjure up. I'm not suggesting that, that God is at my beck and call, doing everything that I want or bringing about the conclusions that I think should be. Because verse 21 tells us that, that God is acting to reveal his glory in the church and his glory in Christ Jesus. But to reveal it to a watching world. And the world is watching him through us. His plan working through us, believers in Jesus, filled in his power to live with dynamic, boldly courageous faith. Because it's through that that God has chosen to reveal his glory. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, In Christ you were brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 10 in chapter 2 tells us this, we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ. And in verse 
chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, knowing this, knowing who you are, knowing what you've been given, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, reflect who you are. <laughs> Live it out. The story is told of Alexander the Great, who during a campaign at night couldn't sleep, and so he left his tent and walked around the camp, and he came as he was walking, he came across a soldier who was on guard duty, and he was asleep, the penalty for which was death. The soldier began to stir as Alexander came, approached, and recognizing who stood before him, the young man feared for his life, rightly so. Alexander the Great asked the question, Do you know the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty? A quivering voice demanded, Yes, sir. Soldier, what's your name? demanded the general. Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great replied, repeated, What is your name? My name is Alexander, sir. A third time, this time more loudly, he said, What is your name, soldier? And meekly, the soldier responded, My name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the, the Great looked at him and looked him in the eyes and said, Soldier, either change your name or change your contact, conduct. Why? Because we are on duty on ser in service to another. And bearing his name, we are to walk in it to demonstrate who we serve. Th those guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier understand the duty to which they are called. And for eight hours a day, this, this soldier will not veer from his, his duty. He will, uh, he will walk, doesn't matter the weather or the hour of day, he will walk 21 steps across the tomb representing the 21-gun salute. He will then turn and face the tomb and remain motionless for 21 seconds before walking 21 steps back again. And again, he will stop, he will turn and wait 21 seconds. And he will do this over and over again, the re uh, process repeated until his shift is completed. And they do it because the soldiers that they honor are the courageous who battle the enemy at great cost. So it, it is fitting that those who walk, walk taller and straighter and prouder. And part of the reason that they walk as they do is because of the shoes that the guards wear. The, the boots are actually have the heels and soles built up to aid in the walking and the turning and the distinctive clicking of their heels. And the truth is, those who walk their duty walk differently. For when you guard this place, you don't walk the same. Their walk was a walk worthy of their calling, which is what we're called as believers to do and what Paul speaks to in, in chapter 4 and verse 1 to 3. He says, walk worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that means several things. First, it means that our walk is to look distinctively different. Not known for the things done, the activities involved in, but known for the look that is shown, 
Because to God, it's the look that it's important. He knows that if our look is wrong, then wrong actions will follow. But unlike the guards at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, our walk isn't to be taller and straighter and prouder. Rather, as we're told in verse 2, our walk is actually to be marked by humility. Talk about a walk that is completely out of step with our self-exalting culture, where we elevate the self-promoting, the self-exalted. But as Paul makes clear, the authenticity and the attraction of our life is to be humility, humility, not elevation. Because it's upon humility that the Holy Spirit will build his unity. It's a humility like Christ. And in the verses that follow, chapter 3 or verse 3, talk about what the church itself is to look like. But our model for that is what we're given in, in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. Who, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The matter of humility is one that is critical to God. Because on the other side of humility is pride. We're told in Proverbs 6 that God detests pride. In verse 5 of that same chapter, he says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. It's an incredibly strong language. But it's strong language because he knows where pride leads. All we need to do is look no further than Satan, who in Isaiah 14, we're told this, in verse 12 to 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, for you've said in your heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. And the central truth of pride is this, that I can do it. It's I orchestrate my life. And pride elevates us and walks us and leads us away from God. So as a believer, as a follower of Christ, your life marked by humility and also to be marked by gentleness. You know, I think it's safe to say that, that many men would hardly be excited with the concept that we're to have be filled be described as a gentle man. A gentleman? Sure, that, that's okay because that conjures up images of grace and, and class. But a gentle man? That conjures up memories of Daniel Sedin's face being used as a speed bag for Brad Marchand's fist. Just taking punches without response. Being passive when a response seemed far more the right response. 
Gentle can also connote that it's disengagement, that I just live in the back row. I stay comfortable, not causing offense, not doing anybody any wrong, but also not doing anything of any significant armchair comfort while others actually engage. But the gentleness Paul speaks of isn't talking about passive non-involvement. Rather, it's to be involved in ways that are courageously right, confronting when confrontation is needed, intervening when things need to be made right. Verse 15 and 17 tell us this, that we are to speak the truth in love, acting in love, that is to redeem and restore. In other words, not armchair, not non-involvement. It's actually live this out, but do it in a way that actually reflects Jesus. And that gentle means a willingness to yield my rights and not claim them. It is strength under control. It's not demanding. It is serving. We get a great picture of that than someone by the name of Aristides in the second century when describing Christians says to the Roman emperor Hadrian, he says this about Christians. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give them freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. Gently strong. Gently engaged. People that are known to be people that are humble. People that are gentle. And we're also to be a people who are patient. And fundamentally, patience is, is not an action, it's an attitude. It's determined by what we tell ourselves when things happen. Because our natural inclination is often an inward boil as we've been waiting for the last 50 minutes in the waiting room of a doctor or outrage as we watch a lone driver come up an HOV lane which they have no right to be in while everyone else waits. But if we um, replace those pictures with a greater truth, then impatience vanishes. Like the HOV driver that we are so enraged about who is, we discover is only minutes away from giving birth. Or the doctor who kept you waiting has just spent that time saving a dying child. We are called to be people that engage, not in judgment, but a people that are patient. Patience that reminds Walk worthy of the one you serve, not rushing to judgment. Patience that reminds, who am I called to reflect? Who am I called to serve? Patience, it reminds me of another story uh, I read of a man who, seeing the the light turn yellow, he stopped at the crosswalk, even though he could have hit hit the, uh, the pedal and gone through. And behind him was a furious tailgating lady honking her horn and screaming at her as her cell phone and her makeup hit the floor. She was still in mid-rant when she heard a tap on her window and looked up to see the face of a police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He then took her to the police station where she was searched and fingerprinted and photographed and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. 
and she was escorted to the, the booking desk where the arresting officer waited with her personal effects. I, I, I'm sorry, ma'am, for the mistake. You see, what happened is I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and cussing a blue streak and flipping off the guy in front of you. And I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker and the Choose Life license plate holder and the Follow Me to Sunday School decal and the chrome fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed, I assumed that you had stolen the car. (laughs) I say no more. We are called to be a people that, that bear the characteristics. Oh, is it that we'll have moments like this? Yes, but we are to reflect the one that we are to serve. And the last thing that we're given in verse 3 is this, that we are to be a people that bear with one another in love. And as Paul guides, uh, as God guides Paul to write these words, I know he knows that there are some in the Ephesians church who are critical and difficult. But he also knows that in the years to come, there will be a pastor serving at MRAC who will have gaping holes in his sanctification. The sermons won't always be stellar and his behavior won't always be exemplary. And yes, there'll be times when he disappoints more than he inspires. And God was also aware that at this church, someone will say something that they shouldn't and another will do something that they shouldn't and he knows that there'll be disappointments that will never be made right and expectations that will never be made right uh, met in short he is aware that living with one another will bring blessing but sometimes those blessings will get buried under the weight of festering wounds and scars places that we just hold on to and don't forgive. And how do I know this? Because God's letter to the Ephesians was never intended to be time-dated and time-stamped. It wasn't speaking to issues that reserved for Sylvanus and Sophia. They actually were written for Richard and Ruth, for Dave and Elaine, for Tom and John, for you and me. Imperfect people living in imperfect ways. People with whom we are called to bear one another in love. And as Paul encourages, bearing with one another in love, understanding that living in a family doesn't always mean warm hugs and wide smiles, but when wounds do occur, forbearing in love drives us to make things right. So resentment doesn't get time to put down roots. So a spirit of judgment and attack isn't allowed to fester and destroy. Forgiving as a forgiving people. And as a result, living as a people of authenticity. A people who love. A people who, though different, are united by the redeeming, forgiving, transforming blood of Christ. People who have encountered God's grace. People who understand what it means to live in the sunset. Not the robotic adherence. People who live 
not on our own strength, but live according to the power that is within us, walking worthy of our calling. God's call for you and I to be symphony makers. The second fiddle playing as passionately as the first chair. So a watching and listening world will be drawn to a symphony that they will want to come to and that will be drawn to that they can live in and hear the music for all eternity. Living out a life that is worthy of your calling and mine in the power of Christ.